Jesus Jones, right here, right now. You know, this is one of those songs that I always kind of thought of as a near miss. You know, it's this close to being great. But there's just something, I don't know, like missing from it? I mean, if you think about the song's many and varied uh, weaknesses or shortcomings, there are quite a few. The singing and the lyrics, they're just not all that well enunciated, so I can't speak for anyone else, but I at least spent probably half the time when this song first came out trying to figure out just what the fuck this guy's even trying to say. So, I guess there's that. But, you know, the other thing was, you know, even at the time when this song first came out, I remember thinking, this song just sounds kind of sparse. You know what I mean? Like, there's something that should be happening in this song that's just not, you know? Yeah, there's a guitar, but you can barely hear it. Yeah, there's a horn section, but you can barely hear it. Yeah, there's a drum machine, but... Or at least it sounds like a drum machine. I, this may actually be a real drummer. I have no idea, but it, number one, fucking it sounds like a drum machine. And number two, you can barely hear it. You know, so I don't know if the song is just poorly produced or what, but this is just one of those songs that I always thought, there's a good song, possibly even a great song, lurking around in here somewhere just good luck trying to find it right i mean just listen to these lyrics you know a woman on the radio talks about revolution when it's already passed her by bob dylan didn't have to sing fucked it up hold on bob dylan didn't have this to sing about you you know it feels good to be alive so number one just what the fuck does that mean but number two it's like this close to being i don't know kind of articulate you know like saying something and then it just, this Bob Dylan thing just kind of comes out of nowhere and derails the whole thing. So, next verse. I saw the decade in when it seemed the world could change at the blink of an eye. And if anything, then there's your sign of the times. So again, we are this close to falling ass backwards into, I don't know, like actually kind of insightful lyrics, kind of meaningful lyrics, and then it just kind of falls apart in the second line, so what the fuck? And then after that, I mean, this is one of those songs that's definitely dominated by its chorus. It's meant to be, I don't know, not so much triumphalist, but maybe just like triumphant generally, you know? But the poor production, the the kind of mumbly type of singing, it's, like I say, I mean, it's this close to being a good song, but it's just not quite there. You know, some producer needed to get involved in this and say, no, you guys need to work on this a little bit more before it's ready for prime time. I mean, look, if what you want is kind of, I guess, the musical equivalent of a B-movie, well, here you go. But if you want something that's a little bit more transcendent, something that's a little, I don't know, dare I say great, this needs another draft or two, you know? So... Anyway, hello and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and all evidence to the contrary, this is not a musical podcast. I'll come back to the music thing in just a moment. Basically, what I do is I've got a pretty simple formula when you think about it. I follow an eight-episode structure. I have six episodes, 
wherein I talk about basically whatever I want. The seventh episode where, at least historically, I've always teamed up with Chris Honeywell so that he and I can talk about various and sundry non-podcasty type things, or at least non-comic book type things. And then the eighth episode is all about Smallville. There you go. The six episodes, though, they kind of lend themselves to having sort of a theme. Whether it's a particular character, or a particular idea, or concept, or whatever. And the six-episode mega-series that I'm working my way through right now is all about the month of January 1991. And the reason for that is because I think that just the 1990s as a comic book decade point blank it just kind of gets a kind of a bad rap in many cases but especially the early 90s there there's just like no shortage of people who are ready willing able and eager to piss all over the early 90s now you kind of get these sort of uh like half-assed mid to late 1990s apologists who basically want to say well guys the 1990s as a decade, it wasn't all Brigade. You know, it wasn't all Youngblood. It wasn't all Deathblow. I mean, there were some, some comics coming out that had genuine redeeming value to them. Not financial value, God knows, but there's entertainment value to be had here. Or there's creative value. Fucking whatever. You know, and it's like they want to sort of exempt the early 90s from all of that, and, I mean, look, on the one hand, I can't sit here and argue that the early 90s was, it was just one classic after another, I'd never be the one to make that claim, because God knows, I mean, you look at a lot of those early 90s comics, we're not exactly talking about Taster's Blend here, people, but having said that, this idea that there's nothing worthwhile at all whatsoever, period, end of discussion about anything from the early 90s, guys, I'm sorry, I just don't buy it, you know, and so, the point of this mega series that I'm working my way through is to say, guys, some legitimately good comics were coming out back then. Or if they weren't, they were at least interesting comics. Or if they weren't, they were at least, I guess, kind of representative of the era. Yeah, there was some real shit coming out. Nobody's denying that. But this idea that the early 1990s had nothing but crap beginning to end, I'm sorry, I just, I don't buy it. You know, and so here we are. That's really the purpose of this mega series. Now, unlike previous mega series, I actually went to the effort of trying to be a little bit more varied with this mega series. Because if you ask me, it's it's been historically speaking, it's been kind of an easy trap for me to fall into where I talk so much about Superman comics, or I talk so much about Smallville, or I talk uh, so much about fucking. Um, uh, Batman, or or, or, or or whatever, you know? And as much as I do really enjoy those things, because they really are awesome, you know, there's more to comics than simply my favorites. So, yeah, last time I talked about Superman number 51, and I had a, a ball doing it, but there's more to comics than just that, you know? And so what I wanted to do with with this mega series was be a little bit more deliberate with things, you know, maybe spend a little bit more time crossing the aisle a little bit and going into the Marvel universe. Because I mean, I haven't really run 
I don't think a very Marvel-centric type of podcast, you know, if records be checked, I just didn't, you know? Uh, I haven't. And so I wanted to, I guess, basically welcome in the other half of the audience that could be listening and maybe talk about some, some Marvel issues here and there. And so in case you haven't been able to put two and two together yet, yes, today I am, in fact, going to be talking about a Marvel comic book. Specifically, this is Uncanny X-Men number 272. Cover date, obviously, is January 1991. And since I just make all this shit up as I go along, everything that you're hearing right now is just me talking and speaking just off the top of my head. Um, I don't know if I actually came right out and said so, but the reason I selected January of 1991 as sort of my focus for this mega series, it's really due to the fact that when you start thinking about all of, I, I guess, the, the confluence of, of different factors and different personalities, different storylines, different events, and I, I guess the politics of the comic book industry, what I seem to notice relatively early on is that when people talk about the 90s, and assuming they're talking about the early 90s, what I find is that generally what they're talking about is the year 1991. And that's not to let Image Comics off the hook for anything, because I'm not prepared to do that. But when people talk about, and I mean this in a sort of, in, a, in more of a pejorative type of way, when people say, that's so 90s. You know, specifically what they mean is the early 90s, usually. And usually when they mean early 90s, specifically what they mean is 1991. And the the general branding, I guess, of early 90s comics, a great big part of the onus for all of that really does fall on comics bearing a 1991 cover date. And as I say, there are positive manifestations of all of this, and there are maybe some not so positive manifestations of all of this. But as I say, point is, that's primarily what people are talking about. And I thought, well, if what I want to do is just kind of, I guess, cut through the glorious ice cream of what early 90s comics were all about, those books cover dated January of 1991, well... Suffice it to say, I could do a lot less. So, just to kind of set out my ambition here, in case that hasn't been made clear yet, the comics I'm going to be talking about through this mega series, maybe they're great, maybe they're not so great. The point is to just kind of get a flavor of what was on the shelves in January of 1991. That's it. This is kind of a little bit, by the way, of me sort of covering my ass a little bit, because I've got fond, or relatively fond, evaluations, I guess, of the comics that will comprise this mega series right now. That's not necessarily to say, though, that they were well-regarded at the time that they came out, or God knows that they're all that well-regarded now, so put a pencil to it. Anyway, so as I say, today I'm going to be talking about Uncanny X-Men number 272, and like I say... A great big part of the motivation behind that, you know, behind making that choice was what it really came down to in the end was 
I guess what I wanted to do was, as I say, talk about some Marvel comics, which, you know, like I say, if records be checked, haven't really talked as much about Marvel as perhaps I could have. And number two, bring the X-Men a little bit more into this podcast, because of all subjects, I've kind of avoided like the plague. Well, the X-Men are kind of one of them, right? So there's that to think about. But this particular issue, the reason I selected this, and the reason I selected that Jesus Jones song that led off the very beginning of this podcast, these two things, believe it or not, really do go together. When I was formulating this, the idea for this six-episode mega series, this January 1991 mega series in general, but specifically this episode, I mean, I knew I was gonna that I wanted to talk about Uncanny X Men number two seventy two. How happy I was to discover, hey, that's January nineteen ninety one cover date, Haas. And the reason I I, I kind of wanted to sort of zone in on that is because of the fact that there came a point in my comics collecting heyday when I sort of went to ground. Does that make sense? There came a point when I, for lack of a better way of putting it, kind of went into the closet a little bit. And that may sound like a strange thing to say in this sort of comic book utopia we find ourselves living in today. But guys, keep in mind that, you know, I came of age in a time and in a place when reading comics, collecting comics... That was no way to win friends and influence people, all right? That could make you a target, you know, of bullies and uh, people who basically just want to push you around and give you a hard time. (laughs) You can only read shit that has pictures in it, you illiterate fuck, or, you know, whatever it is they're going to say. You know, you can't fucking read. And, you know, uh, guys... January of 1991, just as a general time, not just the cover date, you understand, but as a general era, that's when I started looking around and noticing, you know what? I'm not making a whole lot of friends by being so open about collecting comics, you know? And that that realization, it hadn't really... It was starting to come through to me, but it it wouldn't really come into bloom for probably a few more months after January of 1991. So this is sort of a long way of saying that I was relatively open at the time that this specific comic came out, Uncanny X-Men number 272. I was relatively open about reading comics during this time. And so, wouldn't you know, somebody came along and found a way to take issue with it, right? I was in the fourth grade, I was 10 years old, when uh, uh, Uncanny X-Men number 272 came out, and I remember sitting in class, and there was this this other kid that came in, this fucking puke, by the name of uh, Ryan. I'll spare you his last name, mostly to protect the guilty, but, you know, he basically, he saw that I was reading a a uh, that or I was reading a Batman comic while I was waiting for a class to start. So I guess I wasn't in the room, was I? No, I would have. No, I was in the. What am I saying? I was in the school cafeteria waiting for the bell to ring. You know, for school to start for the day. I was reading a Batman comic at the time, 
And I had a Superman comic on deck. That was going to be the next thing that I at least started reading while I waited for the bell to ring, right? So he wandered in, saw what, what I was reading, and he made this face. And those of you who were DC fans in the early 90s, you know what face I'm talking about. That just fucking smarmy douchebag face that says, what you're reading is so beneath me, it's not even funny. You know, he just, he makes that face, right? Well, this is not the first time I'd seen that face, right? And, you know, I just asked the guy, you know what, you got a problem? And, you know, guy said, no, you're just reading stupid fucking comics. And I said, oh, okay. Because this is the first time anybody had ever said this to me, right? Fucking dick. Anyway, so I, so I say, oh, really? All right. Smart ass. What comics should I be reading? Guys, I shit you not. The guy reached into his backpack, and I mean like right at that moment, reached into his backpack and whips out a copy of Uncanny X-Men number 272. And he says, this is real comics. And I say, okay, well, I'm, I'm just so impressed. Kindly fuck off. And anyway, guy said, I'll tell you what. I'll let you borrow this comic. You can take it home, read it, come back tomorrow, and I want you to look me right in the eye and tell me this is not the greatest comic book that you've ever read. Now, guys, I'd never really had, like, a fanboy rivalry with anybody before. Not really. I mean, I'd been subject to a fair amount of abuse for reading comics, and even at the hands of Marvel fans one might say, especially at the hands of Marvel fans. There was just this attitude of superiority because I'm not reading that. So you might say that to the normies, well, I'm not reading comics. So you're a loser, Magnus. And I guess to the Marvel fans, the attitude was something more like, I'm not reading DC comics. So you're a loser, Magnus. So, you know, well, like I say, this was not exactly my first rodeo, but, you know, I still didn't really have a lot of experience with rivalries. You understand? So I thought, okay, wise ass. Okay, tell you what, I'm going to read this comic, take it home, read it tonight, coming back tomorrow, and I'm going to give you both barrels of my opinion, whatever it is, good or bad. I will spare you nothing, all right? So there's a chance, dude, that I could come in here tomorrow and tell you that, yeah, this truly is the greatest comic that I've ever read. That is certainly a possibility. The other possibility, though, is that I'm going to come in here tomorrow and tell you why this comic is a lump of shit, all right? So, you know, you just need to be on your guard about that. The guy, Ryan, uh, he basically accepted my terms. And so I took the comic home. I read it. And as was my, my custom back in those days, I liked reading comics with the radio going. Now, that obviously is going to be kind of an imperfect thing simply because of the fact that, you know, maybe 
once every two hours they play something cool, but then the rest of the time they just fucking talk. But, you know, as luck would have it, I turned on the radio while I geared up to read Uncanny X-Men number 272, and that Jesus Jones song just happened to be what was on the radio. So I knew I was going to... The minute I decided on uh, this January 1991 mega-series that I'm working my way through, and when I realized when this specific issue of X-Men was cover dated, I knew I was going to use that Jesus Jones song, and I knew that I was going to talk about this specific issue. Now, as to the issue itself, guys, it it is what it is, all right? This is basically part seven of the Extinction Agenda. Uh, Uncanny X-Men number 272 cover date, as I've gone to pains to say, is January of 1991. On sale date is November 6th, 1990. Cover price is $1. $1. Editor is Bob Harris. Writer is Chris Claremont. Penciler is Jim Lee. Inker is Scott Williams. Letterer is Tom Orzachowski. Colorists are Joe Rosas and Glennis Ween. And the summary for... Uncanny X-Men number 272. Guys, this is, like I say, part seven of the Extinction Agenda. Title thereof is Capital Crimes. Story summary is as follows. The captured members of the X-Teams are put on trial in Genosha. They're offered to volunteer for the mutate bonding process. Otherwise, they have to face death. And I'm going to put this summary on pause here and just say that Guys, I actually had to look this up. What the fuck is a mutate? I mean, like a mutant. Well, this we all know. But what exactly is a mutate? So, went ahead, did some uh, some digging around here, and what I found is this. The mutates are mutants that were modified using a process created by the gene engineer David Moreau on the island of Genosha. These mutates were used as slaves of the people there, meaning there, on Genosha. Dot, dot, dot. When the mutates were freed, a government was formed with a mutant team. Actually, that kind of gets beyond the point here. Point is, basically, what we're talking about are mutants who are, I guess, sort of drone slave types, right? You understand? So, that's basically what we're talking about here. So, when I say mutates... Keep in mind that we're basically talking about some Stepford-like slave-type things, right? So, there you go. All of them, meaning all of these one-time mutants, the members of the X-Team, all of them choose the latter, meaning facing death, and they're brought to Cameron Hodge, who enjoys having so many toys, quote-unquote. The mechanical monster has Archangel and Wolverine fight it out with each other without restraints and forces the others to watch. Psylocke pretends to be no longer able to bear the brutality and accepts being transformed into a mutate. Soon after, she's led away, and she surprises her guards with her ninja skills and quickly escapes. The engineer Moreau and Tam Anderson decide that Hodge has finally snapped and they plot behind his back. Outside the, the Citadel, Dr. Moreau orders a mutate to create a tunnel below the Citadel not aware that they're being watched by Richter, Jubilee, and Boom Boom. Cameron Hodge murders Wipeout and frames Magistrate Havoc for the crime, 
Getting rid of both, the only way for the X-Men to regain their powers, as well as a possible opponent. Tam Anderson and Psylocke take Mutate 20, which is to say Storm, to the prisoners who have just freed themselves thanks to Gambit's lockpicking. Something strange happens as Storm hits Cyclops with lightning. Aurora is back to her former adult self and has washed and has washed off all effects of the mutate bonding process and Scott has gotten his optic blast powers back. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, guys, I got to take it really from the top here. I mean, just kind of generally, this comic is, and I mean specifically, Uncanny X-Men number 272. See, guys, I spent a, a majority of probably all of the 1990s, I'd say, with this idea that all Marvel comics were just impossible, impossible to get into. You know, unless you were conversant with the last 20 fucking years worth of continuity and, and characters and, and story developments and all of that other fucking bullshit, you know, and, you know, basically if you didn't have a PhD in X-Men continuity, there's very little chance of you being able to get in on the ground floor of anything, precisely because of the fact that there is no fucking ground floor here. And it was this issue in particular, that really gave rise to that prejudice of mine, you know? And is that fair? Well, maybe, maybe not. But no matter how you look at it, that was the prejudice that I had. You know, I gave this comic book, for bragging rights if for no other reason, guys, I gave this comic book my dead-level best effort back when I was in the fourth grade, and it just, it didn't, it never gave me an entry point into the story, you know? Not really. The closest it came, and I'm going to come back to this in just a second, but the closest it came was actually that, that sort of kangaroo court thing that the members of the X-Teams had to go through at the beginning of the issue, where everybody gets introduced and all of that, and you get a little bit of an idea of who these characters are, what their powers are all about and all that stuff. But if you don't know anything about Genosha, if you don't know really all that much about mutates, if you don't know... Basically that normally the, the, these mutants usually have powers of some kind. If you don't know any of that shit, not to mention immediate goings-on that, that preceded this story, guys, you're fucking lost. All right? Now... There's a sense in which I kind of want to call that just plain old bad writing because I'm of the opinion that every issue is potentially somebody's first issue. And so you need to give, if for nothing else, for the 22 pages that are about to unfold, you need to give new readers some kind of access point into the story. Or maybe not the story, but just specifically that issue. You need to give... You need to introduce something, you need to develop something, and then you need to resolve something, you know? Whatever it is, in every issue. And everybody kisses Chris Claremont's balls about what an amazing writer he is, how creative and uh, how original uh, all of his stories were, and how he kept 
you know, just building things up, you know, in issue after issue after issue where things would get a little bit cooler and a little bit bigger and a little bit more awesome, you know, and all that stuff. And guys, you know what? For all I know, that may even be true. All I'm saying is that I was the consummate X-Men outsider when I read this issue. And I had literally no fucking idea where to start. Now, yes, it is fair to say that it's a little, it's maybe a little bit unreasonable to expect to come into part seven of a storyline and expect to be able to get it. But then I'm not the one that that had that expectation. It was that jack-off Ryan from uh, my school. He was the one who gave me the idea that, you know what, I'm going to be able to do this and it's not going to be a problem. And he was wrong. So, anyway, I'll come back to all that in just a little while. So, for right now, though, I will say that this is uh, a pretty cool cover. Now, it's a little bit generic in as much as it's... This is... It's almost a little bit pinup-y. You've got Archangel, you've got Storm, you've got Cable, and you've got Wolverine. And they're in a kind of generic pose. You could probably use this same exact cover on zillions of other X-Men comics. And who would know the difference? But apart from that, you know, the lack of relevance this particular cover has to this particular issue, it is a cool cover. This I will admit. So, from there... We get into page one, and this is a this was a pretty, I would say, routine narrative device. I don't know that Frank Miller is actually the first one to ever do this, of using a news story to kind of frame, I guess, goings on in this issue, the things that happened before you started reading, and things that happened later on. You know, I don't know that. I don't know that Frank Miller was the first person to use like TV news as kind of a uh, an anchor for exposition and whatnot. But that was... He, he Frank Miller is the first person that I'm aware of using it. I'm just not going to say that he's the first. And ever since that time, ever since Frank Miller, it's become, it, it really did become, I shouldn't say a, a cliche, but it became kind of a mainstay in comics that people would, uh, that writers would use basically TV news or radio news or whatever and kind of man-on-the-street types of interviews to give exposition. And one of the things that I think is actually really neat about the X-Men in general is that because of the fact that we're talking about a group of ostracized sort of outsider segments of society, you can kind of get some interesting diversity of opinion about all of this. And a good example of what I'm talking about is, and I also, you know what, I also get the idea there's a little bit of social commentary that's going on here. The first sort of man-on-the-street interview that we come to on page one, it's somebody by the name of Suzanne Gaffney, and it lists her job title as editor. And she says, Genosha? That's some new Japanese restaurant, right? Now, what exactly she's an editor of, the text does not say. But editor, that could have a a resonance, I suppose, back to journalism. And so 
if this chick has no idea what the fuck Genosha is in spite of what sound like some pretty epic current events, man, you talk about somebody who's out to lunch. And speaking of out to lunch, it seems that that is indeed where she is. It seems like she's sitting around in a restaurant. So again, I ask you, is Chris Claremont uh, kind of skewering news media here a little bit? One must wonder. And then from there, we get an interview with Reed Richards. He says, oh, I'm sure there's a big misunderstanding. The X-Men are heroes, blah, blah, blah. Uh, somebody else who refuses to be named says, I'm sure those mutants deserve whatever punishment they're about to get. Some people refuse to comment. One person, this black guy says, you know, a slave society would go to any lengths to smash the one force capable of challenging their supremacy. And you're surprised by that. And again, you know, some kind of interesting social insight there. We get uh, just this quickie interview with Jennifer Walters, who says that she's applied for a visa to go to Genosha so that she can represent the members of the X teams and whatnot. And then we come back to the newscaster who says that her request was denied by the Genosian Ministry of Justice, you know, because basically some bullshit. And basically what this does, I will, for as, for as much as this issue kind of left me cold back when I was a kid, I will say that what it does well is give you kind of an interesting diversity of opinion. I suppose, I mean, I'm not sure if that's really the best way to put it, but it, it gives you a little bit of a flavor of the the different attitudes and the different opinions that are floating around related to uh, the mutants in the Marvel Universe. So, guys, I think it was actually during one of my podcasts, I want to say I was recording a show with Scott Rifen about House of M, where I guess I finally got the X-Men, you know? I understood what the X-Men are all about. And honestly, it was staring me right in the face on page one of this issue back when I was a kid, but it's like it just didn't sink through to me, right? But it does need to be said, as and as Michael Bailey, I think, has kind of trademarked this phrase, the Avengers are basically the varsity of the Marvel Universe, right? They're the go-to guys. When Galactus has the munchies, they're the ones that you call, you know? The X-Men, they're sort of the, the hated fringe minority. If... If the Avengers are varsity, then the X-Men are the art students. You know, they're the goth kids. You know, they're the outsiders. And they're not, by any means, beloved of the people. And come to that, you could view a lot of their actions as policing their own, basically so that all of society doesn't come after all of them. You know, and they're... I guess they're heroic, in a sense. But are they really heroes? Well, if you if you define that in the same sense as the Avengers, or or uh, I guess for that matter, the New Warriors, or whoever else, you know, the answer to that is no. You know, this is not. There's nothing, nothing at all glamorous about being a mutant in the Marvel universe. You know. I mean, you kind of have to wonder sometimes how much the mutants even like each other. But they're more tolerant of each other than society is of them in general, you know? And for as much as that was staring me right in the face, right here on the very first page of this issue, 
it's like it just didn't soak in, you know? And to be fair to me, I mean, some ideas just take time to bake, you know? You need time to kind of get your arms around what exactly a concept is, or a team is, or a character is, or whatever, you know? You sometimes need time to to figure it out, you know? And since I spent the majority of my comic book reading existence pretty well avoiding the X-Men, I want to say that I can probably be forgiven for not getting it sooner, you know? Or so I want to tell myself when nobody is looking. So anyway, whatever. Getting into pages two and three, we basically get the the mutants, they're on trial, and they're on trial in Genosha, and we get introduced to who they are as people, you know, what are their names, but we don't really get to know them as characters, you know, and you, you know what, guys, there's an argument that, you know, when you're coming down to the end of, when, you, when, when you're coming to the end of a storyline, that's not the time to do a whole lot of character development, you know, like a big epic sweeping crossover event like Extinction Agenda. That's maybe not the time to uh, do dense, layered, textured, nuanced character pieces. No, now it's time to make with the with uh, the action and the fights and the explosions and all that stuff, you know, the chases and whatnot. You know, fine. But again, I'm not the one that set my expectations for this issue. Somebody else did. And it just didn't deliver. You know, yeah, I was introduced to Marvel Girl right here on page two. But who the hell is she? Well, guys, unless you're paying really sharp attention, you wouldn't necessarily know just from reading this issue who Marvel Girl is. You know, you wouldn't necessarily know her real name. And when you think about how integral that whole conflict and that relationship and whatnot between, uh, you know, uh, Cyclops and Wolverine, how integral that really was to X-Men comics of this time, that's a pretty fucking big omission, you know? Marvel Girl as a name and her real name as a name, these two are never associated with one another at any point during this issue. So unless you already knew who she is going in, you know, you already know, oh yeah, I, I know her name. If I didn't know her name when I was reading this, and so I kept wondering, you know, why is there tension that seems to be caused by her, right? By which I mean Marvel Girl. Guys, I didn't know. You know, fucking nobody told me. No one in this comic ever says who she is and what is so important about her. And so as a result, you know, there are character dynamics that a new reader is completely missing out on. But another thing is, you know, it was common for Marvel Comics to have those little introductory blurbs. You know, the friend, you know, after being bitten by a, a radioactive spider, Peter Parker gained spider powers, and now he's your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, or the X-Men, dedicated to protect a world that hates and fears them, or uh, the Avengers are brought together by forces that are, or threats, or, or enemies, or whatever, that are too big for them to solve, for any single one of them to solve, and so they are the Avengers, and all of that stuff, you know? I mean, it's like, that just seems to be missing 
from pages two and three here, even though you would think it's probably supposed to be there. So, I don't know, here again, it's just like a lost opportunity to to kind of brand who the X-Men are and what their role is in the Marvel Universe, you know? That's information that might have been kind of useful to me when I was 10 years old and reading this comic book for the first time. So, anyway. But pages two and three, right? It's basically this two-page sort of glory shot of the Genosian... Um, I don't know, the Genosian court, I, I don't know really what else to call it, the Genosian court basically putting all of the mutants and whatnot on trial, and it basically lays out, you know, what what the agenda here is and, and what the stakes are. And one of the things I will say about Genosha and about this issue is that it does give you a little bit of a, of a, of a decent idea of how exactly... Genosha works, at least on some level or another, in that the judge or the magistrates or whoever the hell these people are, they're basically wearing, and it looks like also the the lawyers, they're all wearing this sort of like 19th century uh, uh, English legal garb. You know, it looks like they've got powdered wigs and they're wearing those robes with the ruffly thingies on them and whatnot, the ascot looking thing. And so there's that, you know. So right away, you know that you you can kind of figure that these are sort of some kind of officious, stuffy, bureaucratic, just fucking blowhards, right? So there's that. You also have those, what looks like some uh, military personnel on uh that are visible at the uh, on the corner uh, the lower corner of page 2 and the general like that beret thing that they're looking at the general just setup of the beret the design of their berets they look basically american i suppose just sort of generically american or generically whatever else but the cut of their uniforms you know and especially those sort of black collars that they have those actually kind of sort of look a little bit Nazi to me. We'll, I guess, be revisiting Nazis before too long. But that looks a little Nazi to me. And speaking of Nazis, there's this symbol, like dead center, in this two-page splash, which I guess is maybe the... Maybe this is supposed to be like a symbol or something in the background of the courtroom, but it's basically dead center right in the fold of pages two and three, where... I guess this is the Genosha coat of arms. And it kind of, again, it looks like the German coat of arms. And one of the most famous examples of the German coat of arms that anybody seems to know about is that sort of, um, that phoenix-looking bird that the Nazis made a lot of hay with, uh, you know, during their time. And honestly, I mean, as a coat of arms is concerned, that symbol goes back a lot further back than just the Nazis. But for some reason, the Nazis, that's just what a lot of people think of when they see that particular coat of arms. So, I don't know. That's just sort of what it reminds me of. But instead of being a bird, this actually looks like it's a sword with kind of wing-looking thingies on it. So, I don't know. I mean, I don't know who designed this. I mean, for all I know, it could have been Jim Lee. I don't know who designed this, but somebody maybe had their thinking cap on. Because again, it, along you know, with the collars of these these uh, military officers that look sort of like the the Wehrmacht uh, uniform. And then also, like I say, you have the symbol 
right here in the fold on pages two and three, it looks like the, I, I guess I should say the German coat of arms, but let's face it, Nazi coat of arms. It, <clears throat> it just kind of rings out Nazi, you know? So it does give you a little bit of a flavor from a visual standpoint, you know, that Nazi largesse. It does give you a little bit of a flavor of who and what the Genotians are and what they believe in. So all around, I will say that that is some good branding. Now, I don't think I noticed that when I was a kid. But, well, whatever. I didn't notice it when I was a kid, but I definitely picked up on it as an adult. And so, whatever. I'm allowed to enjoy it now. So anyway, from there, we get basically a couple of pages, really, of uh, exposition where everyone talks about, you know, uh, just how fucked. Fucked, I tell you, fucked. The mutants are because now they're gonna be they're gonna be judged and they're gonna be uh, in in they're in deep trouble and you know they're they're you know they the the shit is about to get real and all of that and that's really the I guess the the tone of it all on the ensuing pages and then on at the bottom of page four Wolverine kind of springs into action and being as he's he doesn't in fact none of the mutants have their powers. And Wolverine is restrained with those huge, giant fucking binder cuffs that cover his entire hand. You can pretty well figure this is going to be a short fight. And indeed it is. Inasmuch as Storm basically uh, smashes Wolverine with what looks to be a hurricane force wind. Tosses him across the room like a ragdoll and pretty well um, uh, takes him down. He's down, but not out. So then... This again, this kind of Wehrmacht-looking chick. She sw uh, swoops into action and pretty well beats Logan's ass, just like right here on page six. And to be fair to everybody involved, this is not exactly a fair fight. Number one, Logan doesn't have his healing factor, so he's probably winded from getting knocked over by that hurricane force wind. Number two, he's fighting literally with both arms behind his back, and. I honestly don't know what kind of bullshit he went through in part six of this story. You know, the issue before this one. So he may have already been kind of beat up and sore to begin with anyway. So what I'm saying is, yeah, she she kicks his ass, but this isn't exactly a fair fight. Now, is it? So anyway, she takes Logan down as if it's all that hard. And then we're a little bit more back to business. We get a little bit more exposition and talky-talky going on here. And Marvel Marvel Girl basically says, yeah, uh, this offer that you guys are, are making us to undergo the gene mod process, yeah, you guys can just, like, fuck off and die. We're not going to do that. Just go ahead and shoot us. And so they say, we're not going to shoot you. We're going to turn you over to Commander Hodge, and he's going to fuck you up. And indeed, that's pretty much what we're seeing here. He's pretty well torturing the the uh, mutants here. And, you know, it's, this is one of those things where you don't need to know very much about these characters. I mean, this guy's just a really sick fuck. So there is, again, a little bit of a tiny bit of character development going on at the bottom of page nine, though, when uh, Gambit swoops in for a kiss on on Rogue. And you kind of got to figure, you know, Gambit, he's a little bit of a horn dog to begin with anyway, but he probably would take advantage of the fact that, you know what? I can kiss Rogue 
without killing myself. So, hmm, yeah, I think I'm going for it. So, anyway, but that's not really the, the focus of page nine. The focus of page nine is that Gambit and Cable are basically duking it out with some Genosian guards and actually making a pretty good accounting for themselves. So Hodge realizes, you know what, these guys are probably going to win the fight. And uh, he basically captures, uh, or picks up, I should say, Psylocke, and basically threatens to kill her on the spot unless they drop their weapons and stop resisting. So, hmm. Now, guys, when I was reading this comic as a kid, one of the things that came through loud and clear, at least for me, is that there's a degree of technical competence that goes into a lot of DC comics that, guys, I'm sorry, is just absent from Marvel Comics, at least of that same era, all right? DC Comics, from again, from a sheer technical standpoint, tended to be more competently done than Marvel Comics. And a good example of what I'm talking about here is actually on page 11, right? Now, I like Jim Lee as an artist. I'm actually of the opinion that Jim Lee, if anything, he's only gotten better as time has gone by, Right? So, yeah, I like the art on this page, you know, and Jim, Jim Lee of this general vintage. I just think his newer stuff is even better, you know. So I'm not trying to, you know, criticize the guy or anything. But, guys, there's a right way and a wrong way to lay out a page. And what we're seeing here on page 11, this is the wrong way to lay out a page. This is objectively the wrong way to lay out a page, right? And the reason for that is because it basically consists of four panels. You've got four, uh, you've got four panels on this page. Three panels are stacked, one on top of the other on the left. And then you have this ultra-tall panel on the right. Guys, listen to me. Do not stack panels on the left. Okay? Fucking don't do it. It's a major no-no. There are never, ever circumstances where you get to stack panels on the left. Do you know why? I'll tell you why. The reason is because in most Western countries, we read left to right and then top to bottom. Okay, in that order. First, left to right, and then second, top to bottom, right? So when you read a prose no novel, you start at the very top line, go left to right, then you read the next line, go left to right, then you read the very next line, left to right, wash, rinse, repeat. Same thing happens in comics. You read left to right, and then top to bottom. When you stack panels on the left, like Jim Lee does right here on page 11, what you basically are trying to do is force your reader to read top to bottom first and then left to right. And that never works. Don't fucking do that. Do what you got to do. Make whatever changes to the layout you have to make. Never stack panels on the left. If you want to stack panels on the right, hey, be my guest. Do not stack panels on the left. Major league no-no. Okay? Don't fucking do that. So, anyway. Again, I like Jim Lee. I think he's a good artist. 
you know, I just don't think he did as well with layouts and whatnot as maybe he could have. And damn it should have, you know, if the editor had been a little bit more diligent with saying, yeah, Jim, uh, don't do that, you know? So anyway, <sighs> moving right along, uh, Cable basically, Cable and Gambit both basically surrender. They lay down their arms. And we see that uh, Gambit's uh, leg basically has some giant metal piece of fucking shrapnel or something like that sticking out of it, thanks to the fight. And at least for the time being, the X-Men are not defeated, but this is basically check. Hodge has them in check for the time being. He knows it. He picks uh, Cable up and basically starts tearing away at his cybernetic enhancements. That is Psylocke's key to pretend like she's just gone all weak at the knee. She can't take it anymore. Just go ahead and make me into one of your mutates. But please, please, please scare, spare Cable. And so Hodge fucking spares Cable. So here we are. Anyway... And, you know, I mean, man, this is there. I know that Chris Claremont's sort of reputation with X-Men is a lot of talky talky. But holy shit, there is a lot of talky talky going on in this issue here. So anyway, um, his next bit of cruelty is to make Archangel and Wolverine square off with one another. Now, this is kind of important in as much as Wolverine doesn't have his healing factor. So... It's possible that Archangel could kill him. All the more so because Archangel also doesn't have his powers. And so the usual level of, of uh, self-control that he might be able to exert doesn't exist. You know, so he's basically the evilest, most nasty version of himself right now. It's absolutely... In fact, it's so bad he's not in full control of himself. So, yeah, it's a realistic possibility that he could kill Wolverine if he's not careful. Or even if he is, you know? So, anyway, the fight ensues. And I will say that, you know, as a kid, this did kind of give me the understanding that Wolverine, I don't know as I'd go so far as to call him Berserker. Makes sense. But he's definitely... Well, fuck it. Uh, Berserker, I guess, is as good a word as any. He doesn't exactly have the same self-control that maybe other X-Men do. So, anyway. Wolverine and Archangel beat the piss out of each other for a little while. And pretty much the le the reader is left to kind of stew over that and kind of wonder what's going on. We check in with, with Jubilee and goings-on there with her surveillance and whatnot. We cut back to Genosha, where... Wolverine and Archangel are still beating the shit out of each other, and Hodge basically chooses this moment to indulge in some vengeance against some other people. So he impersonates Dr. Moreau and contacts Wipeout, basically say, hey, would you mind swinging by here real quick? Um, there's something I need to talk about with you. So meanwhile, Psylocke makes her escape from her guards. She picks up one of their guns, crawls through a ventilation shaft, and is pretty well on her way to doing whatever it is that she's about to do. And at that moment, Wipeout, 
he pays Hodge a visit. Hodge takes that moment to kill him, but it's done off camera. I mean, it's later said that Hodge is the one that did it, but the actual murder takes place off camera. Uh, meanwhile, back in the X-Men's holding uh, cell, Gambit figures out a way to free himself and his teammates. And after that, they basically start working out a, a, a strategy to make their escape. Meanwhile, Havoc gets blamed for Wipeout's murder, and he gets arrested for it. Elsewhere... Who the... Oh, yeah. Uh, basically, elsewhere, uh, uh, Commander Hodge basically attacks the... I, again, I don't even know what to call this... Well, fuck it. I'm just going to call this military force until somebody comes along and corrects me. I'm just going to call him the Wehrmacht. And so... Hodge basically attacks him and starts just blasting him into pieces. And in pretty short order, things are looking pretty bad for him. Specifically, Chief Anderson as well, the Nazi chick who beat Logan's ass earlier in the issue, back in the courtroom. And she tries to hand... Uh, storm off to Psylocke, who's opened up a vent into the room, and, in fact, does so, and she ends up having to kind of browbeat, and I, I, I'm talking here about Anderson, she has to kind of browbeat Psylocke into taking her along for the ride, too, because without Anderson, it's over. For the X-Men, for Genosha, everybody. So you can tell that against... Psylocke's own better judgment. She's going to go ahead and bring Anderson along for the ride. Meanwhile, back in the holding cell, I guess the gladiator ring, uh, Archangel and Wolverine are kind of tired of beating the shit out of each other for a while, so Marvel Girl kind of snuggles with Wolverine a little bit, which Cyclops, and this is on page 29, Cyclops sees that and... Ouch. So... Anyway, at that moment, somebody basically announces, oh yeah, this is uh, Commander Anderson. She basically announces, hey guys, we're in deep shit. Hodge is on his way right now, and he's, he's going to beat the shit out of everybody. So Storm swoops in, electrocutes Cyclops' eyes, which somehow gives him back his optic blasts. And at that moment, Hodge crashes into the room, and... Cyclops gives him basically the full, unfiltered power of his uh, optic blasts. And Anderson basically takes that moment to say, Hey, I've got your ruby quartz visor right here. It was luckily tucked away in my purse. And Hodge springs back into the room saying, Nasty, nasty, nasty. You've got your optic blast back, Cyclops. What a surprise. Nice shot, too. Best I've ever taken. Unfortunately for you, though, nowhere near quite good enough. Now, muties, for the last time, it's my turn. <laughs> and so, I don't know. I mean, I'm of the opinion that, and this is page 31, meaning the last sort of page of this issue, I'm of the opinion that in a perfect world, if you're going to end on a cliffhanger like this, it needs to be a full-page splash, you know? It needs to be something that's big, imposing, threatening, where you're kind of wondering, how are the heroes ever going to get out of this? And we don't really get that. I mean, it's like this issue just sort of ends, you know? 
Uh, the little caption box says, To be concluded in New Mutants number 97 and X-Factor number 62. And in 30 days, too many mutants or whose school is this anyway? And all that. So, it's like this issue, this story. It just sort of ends. But you don't really get that sense of uh, a cliffhanger. You understand? So, anyway. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being too picky. I don't, I, I don't know. But that that was sort of my reference point on it. And anyway, like I say, this issue isn't terrible. I mean, it's not great, but it's not terrible. Maybe I gave it a little bit of a, uh, a little bit too hard of a time when I was a kid, but I don't know. I mean, it's just like what I wanted from comics when I was a kid was an accessible story with characters that I can understand and relate to on some level. And this issue doesn't really give me that, you know? Now, the larger storylines that embroil these characters and, and you know, basically how their individual personalities come across and all that stuff, yeah, I mean, I can connect to it a little bit better now, but that's only because I've kind of, partly by sort of force-feeding, I've kind of forced it, you know, and I've actually forced myself to read these comics and uh, get a little bit more into these stories and understand a little bit more of the dynamics that are going on here. But I'm just saying that this issue, it gives you no entry point into anything, and it doesn't really give you an anchor, you know? It doesn't give you, as a new reader, something to be invested in, you know? Some new conflict that get, that gets introduced, resolved, or rather introduced, developed, and then resolved in this issue so that, you know, you have at least that to work with as a new reader, you know? I mean, there are a lot of good and positive strengths to this, to this issue, but there are also, guys, I'm not going to kid any of you, there are also a lot of drawbacks to it. You know, there are a lot of weaknesses and shortcomings. And I just don't think that this story is as accessible as it could be. And all of this, literally everything I've heard up to this point, kind of leads into the conclusion of that story that I was relating to you guys earlier, where I told Ryan the very next day at school a less articulate version of everything that you guys have just heard. It's like, what the fuck is going on? Who are these people? Why should I care? Uh, what is Genosha? What's so special about Genosha that distinguishes it from the United States, you know? None of that stuff is really explained to me. Now, yeah, he had answers for all that stuff, but none of it was given to me in this comic, you know? And maybe it's a lot to say that everything that's gone on in X-Men comics be recapitulated in this issue just for the benefit of new readers. Then nothing gets accomplished in the story, but something, anything. You know, any kind of gateway into the story, any kind of way that you can better relate to these characters, anything is better than the relative nothing that I think we got here. So, anyway. Is this the comic, the greatest comic that I've ever read, as I was promised by Ryan back in the fourth grade? Then as now, the answer remains no. But it does, I will say, rereading this now, it does actually kind of make me want to give Extinction Agenda. It does make me want to reread the entire story now. And just see how the rest of it all holds up now that I've revisited this issue and maybe have a better access point, I suppose, into the rest of the story. I don't know. Maybe I'll do that someday. But anyway. 
another decision for another day at another time. Anyway, that's pretty much it, I think, for Uncanny X-Men number 272. Now, as to next week, what I'm going to be talking about is The Flash... Sorry. As to next week, what I'm going to be talking about is Flash number 46. But that's going to be next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week, though. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. everybody, Magnus here. At Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But mostly it's comics. And starting in February 2018, I'm launching a mega series that's all about Batman comics. And right now, you're probably saying, but Magnus, but Magnus, does this have anything to do with that new Batman movie that may or may not be coming soon? Why, yes. Yes, it does. I plan to talk about a crapload of Batman comics, and I want you riding along in the Batmobile with me. This is the Caped Crusades, a 24-part mega-series all about Batman comics that have meant a lot to me for a lot of years now. And, as I work through all of that, I'll also talk about what I personally consider to be Batman's series finale. All that and more is part of the Caped Crusades, a 24-part Trennis Magnus Punches Reality mega-series. Be there in February 2018. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com as well as iTunes. Torch their hair.
They stand for truth and justice In sea, on land, in air Aquaman and Firestorm They make a super pair The Fire and Water Podcast Celebrating Aquaman, King of the Seven Seas And Firestorm, the Nuclear Man Available at Fire and Water Podcast Aquaman Shrine Firestorm fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, here to talk about Firestorm. Along with me is my co-host, Rob Kelly, here to talk about some guy that talks to fish. Really? You're going to pull this crap during the promo? It's bad enough I have to put up with your shenanigans every... So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. Mm-hmm.